0: listening to the running public from marathoners to mud runners we all have the same goal get to the finish line faster that's right this podcast is for you guys the running public
1: i hit the red button so it's on fellas whatever
0: happens from here
1: on out happens all right miguel we uh we don't know each other we don't. I I know
2: of you, like not just from TRP, but like, I think at some point in time hanging out with Hunter, or hanging out with some of the other, some of the other uh, old, what, what is, what was the name that, uh, that Kobol and uh, Chris Rutz gave us who are like founding, founding members of the pro team or whatever. So it's like, I think it's that's, not me. Yeah, no. Well, it's, it's all of us who are like, what, 2012 to 2015 or whatever. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Kirk. How are you? It's
1: nice to meet you. Well, that's why I was wondering if you guys knew each other already, Um, because I've seen your name a bunch of places, but I actually don't know hardly anything about you, so I was kind of excited to dive in that today, but I figured you were an OG. Like, Bracken, do you guys
0: know each other from history, historically? Yeah, this is one of those weird spots where usually anyone who comes on knows the other person through one of us. But you two don't know each other because, Kirk, you and I haven't talked about Miguel because he's been out of the... Ecosystem for so long that we haven't even had conversation. Usually, we talk about everyone behind their back, but (laughs) you haven't come up until recently back, back on our radar. Yeah,
2: I I call it like the snow leopard effect. You know, from um, what's what's that movie like uh, with with Ben Stiller, where you just kind of show up occasionally, you're majestic for a minute, and then you just like step back and and disappear into the mountains. So that's kind of that's kind of been the vibe since like 2017, basically. Is I just kind of show up, do a race, and then I just go back to my life.
0: (laughs) So this is how I described you to Kirk. Okay. I said you were one of the OG OCR racers. Yeah. And you were always good enough to be up there, but your running kept you from being one of the top, top dogs. And you left the sport and became a runner. It was like the exact opposite trajectory of most people where they became runners, found OCR later, And had a hard time adapting to ocr you were good at ocr from the start but you needed more running then you left became a real solid like living the life runner and (laughs) haven't been immersed in ocr anymore you're you're like the the opposite career trajectory of what we consider ocr
2: yeah yeah i mean i guess man this is uh i have i have so many mixed feelings
0: on this on my statement or how you're going to react to it. <laughs> oh no, uh, I mean I guess no
2: no a little, a little bit of both. I mean cuz you're right like I was not I was not a runner. I mean like I I I played football and uh in high school and I was not very good at it. I just liked, you know, to to go to practice and I was like decent at practice but like it took me 3 years to understand the school, the sport of football. Um and so I was a senior by then. And the only running I did was just for the sake of getting my fitness up so that I can like start, um, as a senior, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, otherwise, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any, I was not classically trained like a lot of you guys, you know, I wasn't, I I didn't run in track or cross country. I didn't run in college. Um, I just kind of always ran because it was something I enjoyed. Um, and it was something that like, was kind of instilled in me early on because a lot of people in my family ran recreationally, but nobody, nobody in my family has ever like competed on any level. Um, so it's kind of nice to be, to be the first, if you will. Um, maybe the first and only, but the first, so yeah. Um, and I, and I got into running like around the time I moved to Durango, man. And when I was out here in 2014, the, you know, the first, the first batch of athletes to come out here from OCR were Hunter and I, and, um, I did like a 50k out here um in Silverton and I and I just knew like this was different this wasn't this is not the same thing as OCR and whatever this is I like this you know um and it and it did translate to some success because you're right Bracken I mean I wasn't um how do I word this uh I didn't have I, I didn't have like the right foundation or the right building blocks to become like a a solid runner in OCR um, it's only until now that I've really been able to put it together. Um, but now I don't really care a whole lot about OCR. Now I just like run in. So that's what I've been doing.
0: Well, I don't want to sell you short because you were very successful at OCR. Yeah. I mean, there was just like, there was Hobie, there was Cody, there was Hunter. And then there were people who didn't have a chance of winning worlds. Yeah. And you were on the left side of the line, not their right. Yeah. And, but we, had, Macaulay and I had a conversation with you one day, and I don't even know if you remember it. And you you were talking about what you do in training right now. And we left afterwards, and we were like, he's pretty much like matching us or beating us a lot of these races, and he's not even scratching the surface yet. (laughs) Like He he is starting to understand running concepts, but he's just playing with them. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. And we just saw like if this kid – turns, to like, not you as a kid, but like you're doing it at a child level. Mm-hmm. If he turns to adult level on his training, he's going to do something. But the question always is with people, will they ever stay with it long enough? Yeah. And for a long time, I thought that answer was no on you because I didn't keep up with your journey. And then suddenly you're popping back up and you realize, all right, this is the other side of the line now, Miguel. And it's really <laughs> yeah. cool to see that not nowhere near end product but that yeah. moving towards finished product because most people left the sport and never actualized what they could have done. And you to some extent are to a big extent are still following that, that trajectory.
2: Thank you. Yes. It's, it's funny you mentioned that cause it came up talking with Yancy the other day. He's like, I remember seeing you. I actually, I have the like metal up there from my failed Hawaiian squats. It's a daily reminder to make sure to
0: listen to instructions all the time. Um, Can we just take a pause there and say that was the maybe of all OCR penalties in the history of penalties, that was maybe the worst failure of all time.
2: Mm -hmm. It's up there. It's only been at stadiums where it's really hurt me
0: like badly, like when there was money on the line like that. Kirk, before he continues on, we ran the the, uh, Aloha Stadium race and he got 30 burpees for failing the obstacle where you have to go down an entire row of fold down seats and squat into them and fold the seat down to full extension and then stand back up. <laughs> that was an obstacle in a real race. Sit in 30 chairs in a row. Could you pick your lane or was it just one big
1: traffic backup?
2: It, there was like a few lanes, but it was it was like me, Macaulay, and, and, and Brack at, at the front, you know, and like a few other guys or what have you, like a little bit behind us. And so, I think they had a few lanes separated out and I just wasn't squatting down all the way. I was do I was like just doing like a slight like feathered butt tap, but the seat wasn't going down all the way. So were we. Yeah. But you know, that's life. That's that's just how it is.
1: Men'll split hairs these days watching obstacles. You can do shitty burpees, you can do anything. You can touch the bell after your foot's already touched the ground beforehand. I feel like you got you got the shaft there because that's they called you you
0: on it, huh? Coming around the corner, we came out of a tunnel and they say sit in every seat in this row. Yeah. I don't hate that. To be honest, I don't I don't hate that. That's what Spartan
1: should do is crazy shit like that, and they've got two damn standards. So I like the whole thirty. Well spot. that
2: that was JJ being creative. Like JJ, the guy who runs Spartan in Hawaii has always had like fun with it. Because JJ I think looks at this like as a sport and thinks it's kind of just like fun, you know, cause the dude ran and like, he was like a, a sprinter in the Olympics in like the eighties or something like that in Los Angeles. So like, and he ran in the air force, I, I think as well. So like to him, OCR is just fun. It's, it's kind of a joke in a lot of ways, you know? So I'm sure that's maybe where the inspiration came, but
0: anyway, I interrupted you, you have your medal from the squat penalty and you were talking to Yancey.
2: Yeah, no, well, I was talking to Yancey, and Yancy t- touched on the fact that like, when we were running together, like, I was right there with you guys. And, and I didn't think about it. Like, I just haven't thought about it. Like, I think about that failure, but I don't think about when I was running with you guys. And then he said it and I was just like, dang, he's right. I was just like hanging with him. And I was like, not, and I felt that you guys were kind of poking and prodding to see where I was at in terms of like, my effort. And I remember that in the race. And I mean, I felt good and just kind of kept it stoic and kept it fresh and fun. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good way of putting it. And it's funny that that you mentioned, like, I remember sitting and talking with you the night before we ran either superhero scramble in Florida, or it was like the Spartan super in Illinois back in like 2013 and you told me that I was just scratching the surface and that I was kind of like somewhere along the lines of like a blank slate and like learning to like run and do things correctly. And I took that to heart. Um, you know, and I, and I really like tried to, to like learn by osmosis, if you will, by running with, with a bunch of different studs, you know, like running with you, running with Hunter, running with, um, you know, a bunch of monsters here in Durango. And then just learning through like, like I said, through osmosis and, and then, you know, actually finally starting to like read stuff and understand and then spending time with, um, with Rich and having him like just eviscerate my form and, and kind of help clean things up. Um, and, and now, you know, uh, I've come to this point where I have one of my best friends and also coincidentally, like very much a coach and a mentor and like, for lack of a better term, like my hype man, uh, Kunkel, you know, I have Anthony, and Anthony and I, we do a lot of training runs together. We do our workout Wednesdays, and we just get together and shake it out. And he was kind of the first one who told me, like, "You got something," and we gotta, and we gotta. And he's like, you know, kind of for lack of a better term, if you want to chase it, if you want to go after it, like, we should go after it. And and he's the one who twisted my arm into doing Bighorn back in 2019, and then he's the one who, who kind of convinced me that I that I had what it takes to compete at Bandera um, in 2021, and and I had a good day, and then. You know, um like I said him being him being kind of a hype man has really helped me come to full circle with this idea that I'm like, I can do this, I can run, I don't care um who I'm competing with, I don't care what anyone else says or what anyone else does i'm just gonna I'm just gonna do like my best and whatever that looks like that day I'm gonna have a really good time um you know and it and it's and it's paid off and and just like being consistent and learning the importance of like consistency and now we're you know like with your aid behind us um now we're planning again to go back to bandera and like we're going back for for redemption for lack of a better term it's it's going to be really exciting this is this next four months of training is going to be like going to be spicy it's it's going to be something totally different because i know i'm durable you know we've won two world's toughest mudder championship team races um i've finished a death race i've done a bunch of long stuff not the issue. Now the question is can I connect the speed to match that durability over these long events? Um and and I feel I feel good about it. I feel I feel scary confident about it. And and also recently um just learning to not be afraid of like failing and being and and not be afraid of like things not going the way that you wanted to go and just and just full sending it, you know, for lack of a better term.
1: Everybody finds their way to Anthony Kunkel. How come I didn't? I didn't realize <laughs> this until recently. We had Joshua Ridinger who's out there all the yeah, time. Yeah. We have a connection. Anthony Kunkel, one of the more interesting interviews we did, maybe about a year back. And we talk about using psychosomatic drugs and performance enhancement. It's a wild conversation, but he seems like a very genuine, true to self dude. Absolutely. Um, how did you? How did people find this gentleman? Not to dwell on him for a second, but you mentioned he was partial credit to him you know, pushing you off the ledge, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, How do people find Anthony and go hang out at the nest?
2: So I, I found, I found Kunkel at, at run club. Um, you know, Durango is real, like Brack lived out here for a minute. Uh, Durango is, is real small. It's real tight knit. Um, and if you're fit, the community's even smaller. If you're trying to get, you know, world-class or trying to compete, uh, this is the place to do it, you know, and everyone just kind of like, gets to know each other there's a lot of six degrees of separation and i was at rum club it was back in 2017 um and mark jones and i mark jones i'm not sure if you guys have interviewed
0: from the past
2: yeah so jones you know two-time selection finisher no one-time selection one time the team selection um you know he him and i won our our two world's toughest motor team races together he was out here for about six weeks and we were just training together and we went to run club one day and i saw one other guy from death race brett rain who was living out here for a minute somehow he ended up out here um and anthony and i guess they were they were hanging out and running together and i just kind of i don't know man i just got a good vibe from anthony we were talking and i think i think you just kind of know like when you're looking at someone who's genuine and someone who wants to like throw down and compete and like chase a dream, you know? Um, and it's important that if you're trying to do those same things that you kinda stick together. And and yeah, man, I mean, I think I remember the very first thing I did was like talk shit and say something about him being short or something just cause I, I just, you know, bad habit that I picked up from Hunter was a little bit of shit talking. Um, but we hit it up, he took it in stride and he talked a little bit of shit back and ever since then we've been hanging out since like 2017. And, you know, I I introduced him to Hunter, like, virtually, and then it it all kind of took off from there as far as the, the Kunkel journey into the world of OCR, you know, which is
0: kind of fun. I guess a little backstory, Kirk. When I think we met Miguel probably 2013, mm-hmm. and at that time, it was Hunter and Miguel. Like, they were, they were a couple in the sport. It, it, they were at each Cute. race together. They traveled together, you know. It was probably... Hunter original... and Benny before Hunter and Benny. Oh, it and deeper much deeper. It was the original bromance of OCR, I would say. Back back when it they came on the scene together essentially. And it was a uh, that was the known commodity. So we've had Hunter on probably four times uh on this on this podcast. So a lot of people are familiar with that name, but Miguel was the original with Hunter there back in the day. So that's the connection through the years. Yeah. Do you think what Miguel and Hunter had compares to what you and I have?
1: Nothing does, Kirk. That's what I thought. <laughs> Nothing does. That's what I thought. M- Miguel, I I got to ask this cuz it's going to bother me until I ask it and I just can't not keep wanting to know what a meat popsicle is. <laughs> it's
0: It's uh <laughs> because it's, I just
1: can't get past it. Oh, uh,
2: my my pronoun? My meat popsicle? Have you ever seen the movie The Fifth Element? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I mean to forever a great ago. Movie. But, yeah,
2: yeah, so there's that scene where uh you know, the cops are like coming to do an inspection or whatever of like, or like looking for, for a fugitive or something like that. And Bruce Willis, you know, has to put his hands up on the yellow circle and identify himself. And the cops are like, you know, identify yourself or whatever. Like what is your, how do you identify or whatever? And he's like, I am a meat popsicle. And so since then it just kind of stuck around in my head. I don't know. I, mean, I, I could go back and watch that movie anytime. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. Like, I heard a podcast all about it recently. Um, Yeah, I love that movie. Um, It is such a good way to like disconnect from all the dysfunction in our world. So yeah, that's that's where that comes from.
1: Okay. Well, it's it's Miguel's uh, name on our server
0: is Meat Popsicle. So I had to ask since I don't know you, I figured that was a statement piece there. You know what? With this new update on Squadcast, I don't see names anymore. You gotta run your cursor over the person's screen and it'll pop up.
2: It came up as a pronoun option, which I was just being, I was being funny, yeah.
1: Well, it's fun, no, I'm it's a (laughs) conversation piece. Now you need to go
2: back and watch the fifth next time you're doing like a treadmill or something.
1: Maybe I'll watch it tonight. I wanted to ask you real quick, I know we're gonna, I wanna get to know you from the start, but um, you have like these, like speaking of statement pieces, you have them behind you on the wall for people to get like a quick snapshot of what you've done and what you do, what is everything behind you on the wall? Like what are some of the things that were worth keeping around? So, so behind Miguel is like a, like a framed piece with some jerseys and medals in it. He's got some Spartan medals. He's got what looks like a Michigan state Spartan head on the lower left, which is, I don't know if it's probably a regular Spartan head and then some other stuff. So what, what made the cut on the wall? All
2: right. So first, uh, I was not the one who suggested this. My fiance, Meredith, um, she wanted to encourage this to be like a true office. Like this is where I I work all day from home. I'm an interpreter and a translator. Um, And so she's like, we should put your stuff up because it was just sitting in boxes. And I was just kind of like, "Ah, I don't need it. Like, you know, um, but so she she went through the time of like putting it up. And so it was just kind of stuff that I had hidden in boxes. But I mean right here, uh we got I, I mean like the recent stuff on the right was from twenty nineteen and twenty twenty one, just doing a couple Spartan Ultras. Uh we got World Stuff is Motor twenty seventeen when we won the team championship, World Stuff's Mudder twenty fourteen team championship, uh World Stuff is Mudder twenty fifteen where we uh, DNF'd as a team due to um, one of our teammates dropping for ankle issues. Uh, all the way on the left is Death Race Mexico, or I guess you're right. My pacer gig from pacing Mark Jones at Leadville last year, which was really fun. Um, and then a bunch of old stuff. I mean, you know, a bunch of old medals and things, uh, old mm. you know trophies. Uh,
1: UCLA grad, I see. Yes, sir.
2: Yeah,
1: Explain to me this. Why does a DNF make the make the board of all things? Why does a DNF make the wall
2: because uh, if you're not willing to learn from failure then you're never going to get any better bam yeah yeah no i i'm um i mean it's just it's facts, man like nobody likes to fail but but it's important um like last year it so i guess i should say this right now uh i'm not doing spartan ultra 2022 the championships i i made like a last minute decision and just Between all the stuff going on with Spartan recently, as far as like not paying athletes, I just was like, it's not worth the stress. Um, It's not worth like the time and the energy to train for something like that. And then for me to just have to be like left in waiting, you know, for for prize money or for whatever else, especially after my experience at URA, like literally I finished the race. uh, I peed in a cup and it was like just disgusting, like brown, orange pee. And then they, you know, gave me my prize money the next day. That was really nice. So I was just kinda like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done like waiting for for like for that. Um maybe next year, maybe if, if things are better on that end with Spartan, but as of right now, I'm just kinda like I'm just gonna focus totally on on regular old ultras. Um but yeah, DNFs, you learn from them. You learn from failure. Failure is good.
0: I had a very this is tangential based off your payment conversation there, but I had a very interesting <laughs> conversation with an athlete with an athlete this week. And we had just put out an episode on pacing. Our last training Tuesday was on how to go about pacing any given effort, with the overriding concept being that the last thing you want to do is tip over early. Because everyone knows that feeling of, all I can do from here is crumble. Mm -hmm. And I have to believe that's a little bit of what Spartan's feeling right now. Like that, they got out hard, they grew fast, they had 50, 60, 80 races a year and all of a sudden with COVID and then with, you know, a bit of mismanagement and with all that went along with it, they're left there kind of with their pants down like, oh, we got out too hard (laughs) and we don't have any legs left right now. We're waiting on a Hail Mary and that's got to be a terrible, that's not an excuse for them, but that feeling I can relate to. Yeah,
2: I mean, I'm not... I'm, I'm not Joe. I'm not in charge of business decisions. I'm just like reacting to, to what I've felt and what I've dealt with. And like, it took almost six months to get paid, um, for the two races I ran last year, you know, and I feel for like everybody else who's waiting on way more than me. Like, you know, this isn't, this isn't my living. Like I am inching towards making more time to be an athlete, um, and to, and to like, run and do things running adjacent so that I can step away from what I do in healthcare so that I can have more longevity on both ends and find this like happy medium. But I feel for guys who like, this is their livelihood, you know, and if you're waiting for $1,500, if you're waiting for your $2,000, if you're waiting for $10,000, like that's not okay. You know, um, Don't 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 promise what you can't deliver you know? Um, so that's kind of my, my thing, but I, but I feel for for Spartan and and like OCR as a whole and all the companies that have like gone under and stuff, it it sucks. Um, but it is what it is.
1: This isn't what we do on this podcast at all, but now I just got to ask one year from now, end of 2023, where do you think, what will, what will it look like? Do you think on Spartan's end? What's your guys' predictions? What do you think the state of the company will be? Call your shots. If you're right, we can go back to this episode and say, meat Popsicle." Called it. <laughs>
2: no, I, I think I mean, look, man, Joe and everybody at Spartan work their butts off, and I think that they're gonna they're gonna keep it together, and I think things are gonna be better. I think that you know there's gonna be a lot of like cost cutting measures that are going to continue to be placed, and you know I don't want to call it corner cutting because that's not what it is, but it's just like what you have to do to survive. Um, but I think it'll still be around. I don't think Spartan's going anywhere, you know, like, I just think it's, it's too, it's too nebulous for me to like, want to, want to, um, be a part of right now. I would rather stick with what I know is, is going to be like a solid thing for me. You know,
0: what do you think, Bracken? I mean, elevator speech on it. 30 seconds. If they go under every sign's been there. Like it's not a shock if they go under, but at this, like, like Miguel said that I just don't see it happening. The product will look different and look different, and they'll run it into the ground before they, because no one's buying it. Like they'll, they'll limp along as long as they need to, is my assumption. But I don't think if they're gone, it's next year. No.
1: Yeah, I think there's going to be a push on their lower budget events, which would be the DECA and that stuff is a little bit lower budget. And I think we're going to see a very streamlined outdoor venue service and the major metros cutting of options. They're probably going to yep downsize a little bit and just focus on ones they know are very profitable, maybe for a season or two where they get their wheels on there. that's what I think they'll do.
2: I mean, and we've always like, you know, a lot of us um, who were kind of there at the spark, at the start, always dreamt of something that was a little bit more streamlined a little bit more standardized um i mean i know a lot of us loved like the stadium setup and and loved the idea of the stadium kind of being like you know the true like arena and the true way of like um showcasing ocr as a sport because it kind of felt like it lent itself naturally to that in that it's like an environment where you can easily have cameras you can easily have an audience you can easily set up audiences and it can be like really conducive to that sort of environment um but but it's interesting that spartan kind of stepped away from from that i'm assuming because it's expensive to set up races in the stadium and stuff but now have kind of found i think they're footing like you said with with some of the lower budget stuff like deca and and maybe can can expand on that i mean i think. That, that's how I started training, you know, like with Hunter back in the day, like a lot of what we did was was like short course style training and like the whole focus was like, you know, kind of built around this this nice model of, of being balanced between your strength, your endurance, your speed and like your ability to to be durable, you know, um, and now obviously Hunter is is like the king of anything under what 90 minutes under an hour or whatever. Um, and And I kind of went a totally different direction because it turns out I really like to be in the mountains and like really like to run for a long period of time. And I really like summiting and I love shitty weather. Um, And yeah, man, I mean, it just nothing, nothing makes you feel more alive
0: than being in the mountains. I mean, that's just me. Kirk, if you could have traveled back in time in 2013, 14, 15 and told me Bracken. We're business partners someday, you and I. We run a running podcast, and we are talking about one of the original OCR guys who's winning hundreds now. If I had to rank that list, I just wouldn't have seen you tipping ultra. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you name the reasons why you like it, it's those are the things that stuck out about you at OCR in the beginning. You were the person hyped up at start lines when it was 30 degrees and sleeting. You were the person who loved the nastiness. You were the person who was ready to just throw down no matter what i was kind of like i felt like a prima donna i didn't want to get muddy <laughs> i was gonna like try to skip around over the puddles and you were just there for that that visceral experience and it may not get more visceral than ultra so i wouldn't have bet on you going ultra but the characteristics were were there the whole time weren't they
2: yeah and i mean that can be there for a bunch of different reasons you know it could be there because i you know uh came up to a to a fork in the road in life where there was a potential of not being able to walk um you know the potential of of like like i i had um i was born with with a severe spinal stenosis which i didn't even know you can be born with um and i guess it got progressively worse as i got older um you know i remember being,
1: where was it in your spine if you don't mind me asking
2: no l4 l5 um and you know i i uh, yeah, it was low. So, I mean, I had, you know, shooting pain. I had numb feet. I had sharp, you know, dull, dull, dull uh, neuropathic pain in my feet and sharp pain in my legs. And like, I didn't know what it was. And I was 16 at the time playing football and I had never played sports in my life. So, at the time, I didn't talk about it. I was just like, this is part of sports, is like feeling these feelings, you know?
1: Hmm. Well, if you ask my grandmother, if you ask my grandmother, that's not a part of sports because she's got spinal stenosis, and you can't go 30 minutes without it being brought up, and I know it sucks. So I'm, I'm, I've had many conversations about spinal stenosis, yeah. but continue. No, no, yeah. I mean,
2: well, so that's the thing is it got progressively worse, and I didn't get diagnosed until I was, what, 19? Um, and, you know, at that point, we just did... Treat, you know, you, you go through through the treatment system here in the U.S., which is you go to your primary, you do your PT, you try, you know, PT doesn't work, you, you try acupuncture, you try acupressure, that doesn't work, okay, go back to PT, try doing a cortisone shot in your spine or whatever, that doesn't work, okay, let's try another one. And eventually it got to the point where I remember I got my second um, cortisone shot or whatever it was, and it was supposed to last like six months to a year. And it lasted a month and a half and I couldn't put any pressure on my left foot. And I was a junior at UCLA. And so I had to like spend the end of, a, uh, you know, like basically all of all of winter quarter, like wheeling myself around campus, around UCLA, using a wheelchair because I like could not put any weight on my feet. And I was sleeping like three hours a night and I was just like, you know, medicating with painkillers and with weed, um, you know, sorry,
1: mom. You started interrupt, keep interrupting, but yeah. So you couldn't, you couldn't put weight on it because of pain or because you lost like n- neuro like control.
0: But so so I
2: had it's weird. I had pain like I had like the what is it neuropathy, but I also just like did not have. I was starting to have some atrophy in the leg just from like not being able to feel things for so long because it was just something that like, progressively worse and worse and worse. Um, and so yeah, that sucked. And finally, my my uh, ortho was like. We should do back surgery you know and he's kind of like it's a bit of a coin toss it should help you feel better but we're confident in this working out and and it did work out like next day i it was an outpatient procedure um i was able to like put my feet down on the ground and actually like feel everything relatively well i mean i still have the atrophy to deal with but things were good and then things were bad because i ended up getting staph in my spine after the fact and so i had to go like i was staying at my dad's house recovering and I remember that he saw like blood on the mattress, and he's like, "Oh, like what happened? Did you cut yourself or something like that?" And I'm like, "No, um and I went, and he like saw my back, and I guess there was like a big old abscess um and it was oozing, and it just like squirted across the room and so I was sorry <laughs> um and I went to to go see the doctor, and they're like, "Okay, yeah, like we need to go clean this out and so they had to you know clean out the abscess they had to like cut some necrotic tissue from what I understand and uh, then it was a really, really long road to recovery. I mean, it took me almost a full year for me to just be able to like, do, you know, tie my shoes like up on a chair and stuff like that.
1: Um, Once they find out you have a staph infection, they start jumping too, don't they? Like, they're like, you've got a staph infection. We need to get on this like now. yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And they just shove it. Yeah, it's like I had, I had uh, MRSA twice now um, from race cuts getting infected. And every time it's happened, I like hear the panic in the doctor's voice. Yes.
2: We'll It'll kill you.
1: Get it. I'm calling it in right now. Right. So anyways, um, now, so I know you were going You're going to ask a question, Bracken, but I just want to dial in on that. Did they catch that in time? And was that a, did they just what, intravenous, probably antibiotics right away and then pills and, and they caught it?
2: Yeah. So I, I had a pick line, I had a pick line place. They gave me, I started with like vancomycin and then from there they progressed me to some other IV antibiotic that I was on for like months uh, because the infection was taking a long time to clear out and then after that i was on oral antibiotics for months and then you know eventually everything was okay but you know it, it was it was to this day nothing has compared from to the pain of like recovering from that but it was also like the best thing that could have happened to me um i don't wish it on anyone but it was like it it awoke something in me that I didn't know was there, and it was also the first time in like years that I like recognized the face in the mirror because I was just like dealing with this pain raw, you know. Um, and there was, there was nothing you can do about it but like face it. And I remember like getting up every like ninety minutes when I was recovering because I was like in tears from it hurting, and the only thing that gave me relief was like walking. And literally, I would like go for a walk around the block at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., whatever. And like, you know, the cops would like drive by or something like that and would look at me like I was weird or something like that. But I mean, I wasn't doing anything, so they didn't hassle me. Um, you know, they asked me what I was doing, and I said, just going for a walk because I'm recovering from surgery. And then they left me alone, you know, luckily. Um, and so that was the only time I felt relief. And like, you know, now I'm, I'm, more than a decade since i had surgery um and i don't i don't have any issues thankfully but it's also been this conscious effort of like for lack of a better term being like a shark um and this may be biologically incorrect but like this need to be like in constant motion you know one way or another like if i'm if i'm i know as long as i keep moving i stay healthy and so that's kind of probably what this came from you know what it stemmed from and like i said i mean anytime i line up to a race i know that whatever i'm going to do out in that race is not Going to even be a, a half of, of what I've already dealt with, and that's that's like powerful and it's fun. I
0: have brought this point up before, and I'm probably going to continue bringing it <laughs> up, Kirk. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> when you went to detox and then came out of detox and ran more in the next five days than I did. Yeah. I realized, and I've talked about this ad nauseum to some people, probably, but that my Easy, pampered, no real injuries up until that point, no personal deaths in my family, no personal issues, softens me. And there is no one on earth who wants bad things to happen to you. But there is no replacement for coming out the other side of a real, like real things in life. And Kirk, you have it. Miguel, you have it. We've talked to several other guests who I just bring this point up. And I was like, it sounds so insensitive to have jealousy over something like that. But you realize that you guys bring something in your quiver to race day and each training day that cannot be replicated. And you had this version where you had the threat of, I can't use my legs again. And you have them back where I've lived a sheltered life. And I'm so blessed and grateful for it, but I bring less quivers to the, or I, I have less arrows in my quiver as a result of it. And that's not a woe is me. That's not a, oh, I just, I don't have a hard life. That is, you can't replace the type of hunger you get when you've been real close to the bottom or when you've been over the edge. And you got that at a strange time in your life. Like, I can't imagine being in a wheelchair in college. Like That's supposed to be your... Like wild oats years where you're just this young buck, just every, the world's yours. And instead you're in a chair and then staff is nasty and backs. You can't limp a back. There's nothing you can do about it. So coming out of that, what changed immediately about you? Because that is an immediate type of reaction after going from legs to leg, like no legs to legs, back to back. What, what happened right off the bat?
2: um it was a realization that i wasn't like not just i don't want to say living the life that i wanted to live because that wasn't the case you know it was more like i wasn't living to like the truth about who i was and who i am and like like i had worked so hard you know i i i grew up in, in like a working class family. And, you know, my parents immigrated to the US and I like struggled a lot in school. Um, and it wasn't until junior college that I kind of figured out how to go to school and like how to be a student, you know, um, just cause like ADHD and cultural and like just different, different things, things that I just wasn't like, that I didn't fully grasp. And it takes me a while to like grasp things. But once I do, it's like I have mastery of them. Um, and so, I you know, I, I got into into UCLA and it kind of felt like like that was peaking, you know, um because I, I thought I wasn't even gonna go to college, you know. Um and from there I I really fell deep into like just the student lifestyle of like just studying my butt off because I had to hold on to like the scholarships and the grants that I had in order to like continue to go to school. Um and 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 like at the same time and 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 like i got i got a taste of like being competitive because in the classroom and especially like an environment like ucla like off well any college you know it's like you sit in the classroom a teacher is 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 lecturing and then a teacher is engaging you and the classroom didn't engage and it's like you guys aren't gonna say anything. It's like, okay, fine, like I'm gonna start participating. I'm gonna start like being a part of this, you know? And then like having other people chime in and then you kinda have like these tit for tat like arguments and discussions um to support like whatever point of view you're trying to hold up and, and that was like a taste of like of competitiveness right there, even if it was in an academic sense, you know, but it's just like the need to be like, I'm right and like I'm smarter than you, or like I'm gonna work harder than you, you know, which is really kind of what it distilled to is like this this essence to like To like work and push and like find just this 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 uh this well that you can like draw from at any point in time you know and and i think when i recovered from back surgery it was like like a wake-up call to like hey this is it like i don't know what's coming you know at the you know i could have died like on that operating table or I could have not known that I had a staph infection and ignored it and then that staff infection could have gone too far and I could have died in the hospital um you know and, and with that in mind it came down to just like this need to make sure that I was living the life that I wanted to live that I was living like something that is true to myself and and I think occasionally I've lost sight of that I'm not going not going to lie to you um but but it's that need to like be true and to like live the live life to the fullest. And I know that sounds cliche, but it's but it's what started this, man. I mean, look, I I remember being in my senior year of college, being grateful that like not only had I recovered from back surgery, but that like I had a job lined up going out of college. And this was like 2012, so like things were just starting to get better economically speaking, you know, after the recession and everything back then. And to have a job lined up with a Spanish degree was like a shock. Um and, you know, I was looking up terminology one day because um, I work in healthcare as an interpreter. And one of the side scrolling ads on wordreference.com was a Spartan ad. It was like a banner ad, you know, and it was probably, it was like someone like in the mud, like, you know, something like that. And I clicked it and it went to like one of the YouTube videos from like Spartans' early, like viral campaigns and stuff. And it was someone who did a black and white video. Layering it over with Eric Thomas' speech about wanting success as bad as you want. And I know this is cliche as hell, but this is like authentically who I am. Like I am a cliche, cheesy person who like believes 100% in this stuff because I like listened to that stuff when I was recovering from back surgery, when I was like, you know, trying to go to school, when I was like trying to like be at my best, you know, all things considered. And I heard that speech and I was like bawling on like a Saturday morning looking up
1: terminology, you know. To a sidebar ad, an ad got you balling, huh? An ad
2: got me balling, dude. And it was Eric Thomas' speech about wanting success as bad as you wanted it to breathe. And, you know, then you go down the YouTube hole and suddenly you find yourself looking at, you know, videos of of different people and just like, and it just, it it awoke something in me, you know, and just like with Spartan, it was like, I need to go do this. I need to go, I need to go run this thing. Um, And back then it was so funny, like. I didn't know how you were supposed to do this, you know, none of us really knew how to train for it. So I just kind of like did what everybody did, which was like a combination of meathead stuff and lots of like, lots of like zone four, like pedal to the metal type shit where you're just like on the verge of puking most of the time. Um, And I also, I didn't know, I guess you are allowed to put like sandbags and buckets down and stuff like that. But leading up to like all these events, like I never did any of that stuff. I just thought that if you put it down burpees, you know, so training whenever it involved a sandbag or a bucket was always like carry it to completion. Um, and training, like in my mind, like you're going to a Spartan race, you have to run the race. And so everything I did was always running, which is probably why I had like some early success back in the day. Initially was because I was like one of the few people out there who was like trying to run shit that you should, probably shouldn't be running.
1: You know? <laughs> so. Do you ever, do you ever reach for like, because Bracken kind of introed with like going through some sort of hardship in, in your life and then kind of reawakening, we'll call it. I don't know what you want to call it, but um, do you ever do you ever reach for that sort of stuff when shit gets bad or dark or do you not? You said like sometimes you lose sight of it, right? And, and for myself, I had some health problems in college that were very scary and then went through detox and alcoholism and that was just about a year ago. And what I find is I don't actually reach for it Hardly ever And then it pops in sometime Like when I'm really struggling Or I'm in a race Or I, I need it Like it'll it'll serve me Only when it needs to be served um, And I don't even necessarily Know when to predict it I don't like wake up in the morning And be like Oh you've been through some shit So you can put your damn shoes on Like I actually don't think that way It's just like It'll sniper me out of left field When I need it most Like what's your experience with that?
2: You know I imagine you've read this. I know a lot of listeners have probably read Goggins's Can't Hurt Me. Um, and you know, uh one of the things like what you're referring to, like what he calls it in the book is like the cookie jar. You know, this idea of like you have these experiences that you've dealt with, and when there are times that you're feeling, you know, weak, that you have doubts, that you have problems, and so on and so forth, you can dip into that cookie jar as like a reminder of like, shit, I can do this, or like, oh, I've I've dealt with worse. And um I would say it's a combination of things. I mean, there are definitely times in a race where I might be like, this is nothing, you've done, you, you race in a sandstorm for 24 hours, shit your wetsuit. Um, or, you know, you, you'd you like-
1: What's that feel like? Uh,
2: it f- feels like terrible at the moment, but it feels great when you're winning a race. So, you know, it's like, there's, but, but yeah, it's, no, I mean, what does it actually feel like? It was warm and we were hypothermic. So for me, it felt great at the time, but it was also very uncomfortable. Um, But, but no, yeah, I mean, like it definitely, like, I don't wake up at 430 in the morning and say, come on, lace up, like, this is nothing compared to blah, blah, blah. No, like I'm, I'm past that. Um, there may there was a time where, yeah, I might have to dip into that a little more. But now I'm at the point where it's like motivation is good to get you started, but it's not going to get you to the finish. Now it's just simply like a matter of like discipline and execution and like making things um, automatic, you know?
0: You want to say that again? I feel like that's one of those – Let's say that again for the people. Yeah, motivation
2: will get you started, but it won't get you to the finish.
1: So true. Put that on a
0: t-shirt. There's your million. You can get out of healthcare tomorrow. The three of us have all been in money races. And at some point in a race, there's no dollar amount they could dangle in front of you that will make you tougher if you're not already prepared to be tough. Yeah. I have given up on a race with thousands on the line because it didn't matter to me anymore. I've seen it. And I have been tough as nails on a race that you didn't win me anything because I showed up there and I was ready to be tough. Yeah. There's nothing, there's no initial motivation that gets you across the line. I love that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. I'm...
0: Did you say you've seen me do it?
2: I saw, I remember it was.
1: Snap. He saw you give up. I 20, yeah. It
2: was either 2013 or 2014. I don't remember. It was the year. I think it was the year that, that Matt showed up, that the bear showed up.
0: Oh, at Killington, yeah. where I walked off the course. Yeah. yeah, I remember
2: seeing you. Like you couldn't get across the uh, the traverse wall, and you and you you don't remember this, or maybe you got across, but then after that, you couldn't you couldn't keep going. But everybody was cramping. Everybody was hurting that year. Like we were mm-hmm. all just just suffering through it, um, myself included. And I remember like looking into your eyes and like like seeing like you were done you know, and there was like this disappointment, um, not in, in the performance, you know, like you went out there and you gave it everything that you could, but it was just this disappointment in that, like, there was just nothing more that you can do. Like you had done everything you could do and that was it. But that's, that's the best way to race, man. That's it. Oh, and
0: I'd never cramped. If you would put you or I in that body that day, we would have finished the race now.
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. That yeah. Version
0: oh. of me didn't know, didn't even know you could accept a cramp and then continue. I thought yeah. like my world just ended.
2: It yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we were all, I just remember we were all fighting it. Like, like the bear had like, like cramps all up and down that course. And he like, I don't know where he finished. Like I think maybe a place or two ahead of me or something like that. Or no, he, he, he got ahead of me later, but yeah. I mean, Matt was dealing with cramps. Like I remember hitting the platinum rig and like, I had had a really solid race obstacle wise and like I was on the second to last like rope to like that you had to wrap your legs around and in the process of like wrapping my leg around like the entire leg just went like you know and I just like dropped to the ground because there was there was nothing like I just I couldn't keep up with with my body you know like cramps cramps ended me that day as far as that's concerned I mean I still finished the race but but I just remember like seeing that like I, I know exactly what we're talking about and, I, and I've and i been there myself I mean I haven't dnf'd very many things but when I or or you know like I've had a, I've had plenty of bad performances um and I haven't dnf'd a whole lot but when I've dnf'd it's like I want to make sure that it's because I just like I gave it everything I got and that's it there's nothing else I could have done you know
1: it's that hollow look in people's eyes, like you know they're about checked out. Mm-hmm. Like you look and there's like nothing, nothing there. I've been there a number of times. You're like, oh, there's no way you're coming back from that. Was that the look that you saw in Bracken's eyes? That's the that's the look. look I recognize when yeah. was like no, there's was a ghost look. out there in somebody's body. And 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 I know, like for example, like I've had
2: that look. I mean, it was 2017. I went to go do Spartan Ultra Champs or Spartan Ultra um, in in Tahoe or whatever. And I was having like a solid race and just like, I don't know, I had some sort of reaction to some pollen or some crap in the air and just like my airway started constricting more and more. And it was to the point where I was like maybe like, you know, nine miles into that race and like I couldn't, I was just wheezing. I was like dry heaving and wheezing and like a combination of like crawling and like trying to walk and like. I just I had that same hollow look, but I I couldn't stop. And if it wouldn't have been for Chris, for Chris Mendoza, like flagging, you know, uh, EMS to like come get me, like I probably would have passed out on that course. But but I had I know I had that same hollow look because it was very much kind of like an out of body experience where I can just kind of feel everything as I was like moving forward and like just kind of see myself like. Shit! This is this is not good. <laughs> you know.
0: You know what the worst part is. I didn't get to that hollow thought yet where you're not thinking anymore. I chose to quit at that point. That was the worst part. It was, I knew it was coming and I decided to tap out before it arrived. The, the signs were there and I didn't want any part of it that day. And there was no money you could have put in front of me. You could have said, I think your body's going to come back a line 45 minutes from now and you could still win it and we'll triple the prize money. And I would have walked off that course. Like that, that motivation it doesn't cut it <laughs> once you once it gets real. But why? Uh, why me personally, on that day, why? No, um,
2: just why? Why would you keep pushing?
0: Because that day I was broken. That's fair. I wasn't physically or mentally ready for what I tried to put myself through, and I came up short. That's fair. You know that uh, you talk about old great movies, uh, A Night's Tale, that you have been weighed, you have been measured, you have you been have found been wanting. wanting. I was found wanting. Mm-hmm that might not be the exact quote but I was found wanting that day and I knew it and I wanted I wanted out it was it was my no mas moment it was just that's it could I keep going more steps yeah probably but I I didn't want it anymore and it's a terrible feeling because you know that yeah like in another era you, you die that day yeah you know that's a battlefield in another era or that's a survival across Uh, a great trek across the plains or like that's the day you die in a less civilized era yeah, because you were just done fighting and and that's a tough one
1: let's talk about that hollow feeling with you um that that ghost nothing behind the the curtains sort of look and feeling in relation to ultras i've actually only had it twice and one time was in a, the inaugural TMX, which is a twenty minute event and that's a whole different kind of hobby because that's like here everything inside of me exploded at once and I realized like I was a broken man and there was no coming back from it but in the ultra just never happened so do you ever go through those like I like you get really foggy right you're not thinking clearly you almost have this out of body experience where you're like I'm not even in my own body anymore I'm like I'm so checked out and broken. Do you do you ever have those and are you able to come back from those? Like to those points are they inevitable in in ultras or are they avoidable in the long stuff?
2: I mean it depends how long we're getting here, but I think I I'm at a point now where it's avoidable. I mean, I'll be quite frank. Um I felt fine during URA one hundred up until like mile ninety-six. Which technically, I was already. What is
1: what is feeling fine? What does feeling fine mean to you? Can we can we clarify that a little bit? Uh,
2: Like I didn't I didn't I didn't feel man. This is that is wow. I didn't I didn't feel bad. Like my body felt good, man. I mean, so like the way I felt during Bighorn One Hundred. I'm going to keep going back to that because that was my first time, and that that race was like like a for lack of a better term, you know, a new chapter. It was like a rebirth, if you will. That race, the moment that that sun set completely was the moment that it rained and it did not stop raining until the sun came up. And it was like dumping, like to the point where if I would not have had poles um, on the climbs of that race, I would have like slipped off that mountain. It was very much like one step forward, two steps back. And that entire race was like a battle, not just to like stay in it, Um, not, not because of like a need of quitting, but just like, because you were being physically just broken by like the elements and like the way that your body starts to feel after about 70 miles, especially your first time that everything begin becomes this like sort of, um, battle between like marginal gains and like damage. And so... You're just by you're literally on like damn it. There comes a point where it's just damage control where it's like you're taking all this damage and you need to just take enough damage to where you can keep going and do what you set out to do. Um I didn't run into that until almost the end of your A one hundred. Um and that was, you know, like like mileage wise, it was about 96, 97 miles in. Um but or I guess race mileage, but I think I was actually closer to a hundred already because I'd gone off course a few times. And so, you know, i had already had close to triple, triple digit numbers on my, on my legs at that point. And that's kind of where, where, where you kind of start having more of a battle of will as opposed to like a battle of the body. Um, and so the very last stretch of that race is something to behold. It's called the bridge to heaven. And it's a five-mile climb, 5,000 feet of gain. Um, you hike from the town of URA, which is about 7,700 feet, up switchbacks that are a combination of, like, formerly mining stuff. So there's, like, a lot of scree and talus. And then it goes into, like, montane and subalpine stuff. So just lots of mud, lots of dirt, lots of foliage. And then you get up into, like, kind of more tundra type things. Or um, And so it's just exposed, like, full – UV rays and just full panoramic views. And it's like beautiful, but also miserable at the same time because you're almost 30 hours into a race. And that it was at that point where I kind of knew that I had sealed the deal winning wise that I I started to like come up into that that area, you know, that point where it's like, fuck, <laughs> this hurts. Um and, and, and you start feeling it. Um you Know and and you start hearing like little, little, little whispers in your mind of like easing up, and little whispers in your mind of like, well, you sealed the deal, like, it doesn't matter now. And um, and then at that point, it, it becomes a battle of will like, what are you willing to do for this? Like, and at that point, it wasn't just about winning, at that point, you know, we were talking about going for the course record. Um, and I'll be frank, like, I didn't care about the course record as much as I cared about winning, like, it was cool. But it wasn't the goal, like the goal to go, was to go to that race and to get you know punched in the face and then keep going and go in. Um, it just so happens that the conditions were right to chase a course record, and so I did. But um but, but this battle of will, it's like you get to the top of this view, and it was amazing because like the former record holder, the guy who, who held the record, Chris Price, he just ran Bigfoot 200 this past weekend and finished third. Congrats, Chris. You know he was waiting for me at the top like he hiked with us for a minute and like shook my hand at the top because I was like the standing record for five years and Chris was like a top five finisher at big bighorn and or not bighorn at a hard rock and a bunch of other big boy races and stuff. So it was really like special to get to get that that time with him. But at the same time I was just like so beaten, battered and my pacer was like if we want to make sub thirty we're gonna have to run down this mountain. And I had just climbed up this monster of a mountain and my legs felt trashed. You know, there comes a point where your legs feel like glassy cement where you don't know if you can bend or bend your knees and run and move. Um, And I kind of had a little like 30 second poo poo party in my head about it where I was just like, I can't do it. I can't run. And then I was just like, no, fuck that. I can do this. Like this is easy. Just lean forward, pick up your feet, bend your knees and you'll run and you'll be fine. And I just ran down that mountain for five miles, like just hovering anywhere. You know, when the terrain allowed, we would open up and we would get down into like seven, like the seven minute mile range, six minute mile range, if it opened up enough. And then when it was like sketchy, talusy, uh, scree type stuff, or if it got real nasty and, and tight, then we would slow it down back into tens and 11s. But you know, we just, we just hammered. And then at the end, I'll upload this video. Eventually it's just sitting on my phone, but I, I I came in thinking that I had time to finish in under 30. Um, and we got to the bottom of the switchback. So this is coming down five miles and 5,000 feet. And I had to sprint from, you know, almost a mile basically to the end of the race to try and finish in under 30. And I had just done all that. And I just like, you know, I remember trying to move my legs harder and faster and they just couldn't, you know, and and eventually it just, again, it's like a battle of will. It's like you can give up right then and there or you can just try and dig a little deeper. Um, and the, at worst, you dig a little deeper. There's nothing there and there's nothing to be ashamed of. At best, you find something more to keep pushing. And I did. And I mean, I had my little sprint finish. Unfortunately, I didn't finish in under 30 hours. Maybe I shouldn't have, you know, shook hands and, and uh, maybe I shouldn't have gotten lost on course a couple of times, but I finished in 30 hours and 27 minutes. And, you know, um, it is it is what it is, but but I'm proud of it. And and I'm proud of my crew and what they did, you know, because they, with the exception of like Anthony, most of the people on my crew were like totally green to that and had no idea how to do it. And so it was kind of like, a little bit of of training wheels kind of at the start and then from there they got they got more proficient as it went on but uh but yeah man i don't know it's kind of going back to it it's like a battle of will like eventually your body's going to crap out on you during a long race anyways so it's like you know
0: how bad do you want it kirk i wanted to follow up on your what does easy feel like during a massive effort because it's all relative but miguel you said something that Made me want to talk about something else anyway. So let's come back to that at some point. But your concept of I was in the lead, I realized I had sealed the deal, and I didn't know if I could run anymore. Like that, you see that only in long enough races. You see it in Ironman, you see it in long Ultras, typically longer than 50 miles. Uh, You can't coast and kick. You can't sit and kick these events, even if you wanted to, like even a marathon. The best runner can just run on the second best runner's shoulder as long as he wants and then crank down whenever you want and win. You don't ever really see that at these longer races because you have to use your skill set when it's available to you. And then eventually you could have a two hour lead and it doesn't matter because eventually your body might stop working. And a lot of the listeners or the viewers will say, well, why didn't he just go easier early on? You could have avoided this, my legs don't work anymore thing while you're winning. If you just went slower and that's like, that's not, in the ultra world, that's not a thing. You have to work at what's available to you when it's available. But it sets up this crazy thing where you can be an hour ahead, the race is run, and I may not finish the race. It's this wild, that only exists in, in long ultra events.
2: I mean, so your race is an interesting race because basically the first 50 miles of the race are much more, let me rephrase that, the first 54 miles of the race are much more runnable than the latter 46 miles of the, 48 miles of the race. Um, So I kind of went into it with that in mind. It's like, okay, I know my body well enough. I know my training. I mean, I did, I stacked 100 mile weeks with 25 to 30,000 feet of gain a week plus, Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I figured you were gonna want to talk. About that.
0: Do you know Hunter and I had a phone call about your training? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited.
2: No, tell me about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're having phone calls behind your back about your hundred mile weeks. What Would y'all think he's like this kid's gonna win this race? I'm like, I've been watching this Strava. He's oh, gonna win this race. I love it.
2: I love, it's good. He didn't tell me that to my face, but it's nice to hear it on the back end. So you know, um,
0: no, we wouldn't dare tell you beforehand. No, I, I appreciate that though.
2: I, I'd rather. I'm. I'm all about it up here whatever i hear anyway so but um yeah yeah i mean it was and that was my um let me let me go so so back to the first 54 it's like i knew that that was going to be more rentable so i was going to treat it in the way that i had trained in that the way i had trained was like moving faster than i than i probably should have but i knew what was going to come in that once that sun sets that course is going to get infinitely harder and there are stretches of that course where you're running into 30 40 you know up to like 60% grades and it's um, like a combination of of talus and roots and you can't see shit and it's like terrifying and all you can do is keep moving forward and so i kind of came into it thinking like okay i can make up some time on the back on the front end so that i can allow myself caution on the on the back end and because of the nature of the race, like I said, it was kind of like a, you know, paint of broken glass. You're always seeing where your competition's at. And so at times uh, competition, you know, the guys, the, the guy who came in third was like pro mountain biker. And the guy who came in second, uh, I don't remember what he does, but I, I know he's. anyways, they're both, we had plenty of talent at the course and conditions were right to where you can see where they're at, you know, and how they're doing. And the whole point was always to just look strong and like, like effortless you know and 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 for a lot of it it did kind of feel effortless i'm not gonna lie it wasn't until 96 miles that i was just like oh shit like now we're really gonna put in some work um but yeah it was that latter half it's just it's pitch black and it's single track and it's the gnarliest climbs that you've ever dealt with and i was an idiot for not having my headlamp at the before I went back and over um, the main the main pass, which was Richmond Pass. And I luckily had a pacer who was prepared and had an extra headlamp for me. But it was just like, you know, once again, this is like the one thing I need to fix that I tend to mess up with my headlamps and I rely on sh- shitty headlamps and then I can't move as quick as I could have had I uh, been using my own headlamp, you know? Um, so yeah i mean that latter half of the race it was just gnarly you can't see anything it's you know three to four thousand foot climbs on single track with scree and talus and then you're like skirting the sides of mountains and like you like look off into the distance and you can't see anything but you know that just below you is like death you know <laughs> like a steep drop off um and that and that's a motivating factor to like keep going and to just like get off that mountain as soon as you can so
1: what are the hot? What are the top five hot tips for making it ninety six miles into a race feeling good?
2: So, train for your race would be number one. Whatever your race conditions are.
1: Interesting con.
2: Right. Novel, novel so, concept. Yeah. yeah. So, if you're gonna run a race with forty two thousand feet of elevation gain, and you're gonna be racing at elevation, you probably want to be doing lots of vert lots of descending, lots of sketchy trails, and uh, lots of elevation. Um, the other thing would be to make sure that you have dialed in your nutrition and experiment a lot leading up to it so that you can work with uh, whatever you have to work with during the race. So for me, I'm strictly on, on liquids, which was like a novel concept at this race. Everybody thought I was crazy, um, like among other racers and like crews and, and race directors, I guess the, the talk of the town was that this guy is going way too fast and he's not eating anything except for liquids. But, um, uh, this has been a, a tried and true method for me ever since 2014, um, with tailwind actually. And then
0: with cargo pro for a while, but
2: now tailwind. Um, so
0: yeah. Uh, I'm a tailwind guy as well.
2: It works now. So I've I've been using tailwind. Um, so yeah, train for your race, uh, practice your fueling
1: um, to reiterate, i'm gonna stop you right now. We're only on hot tip number two okay. but um you didn't eat one you didn't eat one piece of solid food for thirty hours. Um,
2: I had like three pieces of watermelon a dirt because this race it it was like a we had a heat wave come in before the race because the next week it dumped like biblical amounts of rain. Um, and I was bummed to have missed out on that, but you know, heat is hard, especially at elevation. So it was just super hot. So I came in from my second loop at Ironton, which is like this eight mile loop with like around 3000 feet of gain or something like that. And, um, I came in the first time and the second time and it was and i didn't crave watermelon because like i needed something in my stomach it was just that i felt the need to have like something like um saturating like uh, and hydrating in my mouth beyond water and tailwind and so i just kind of like would like inhale it and just let it sit in my mouth and like take it just like let it let it like absorb slowly um but that's it yeah i had three pieces of watermelon and then otherwise uh I just dumped my head in water as many times as I could to try and stave off the heat because it was like eighty to ninety degrees, and you're racing between you know seventy-seven to almost fourteen thousand feet the entire time.
1: Well, I think anybody who like. Watches YouTube videos of ultras like I do some days when I'm on the treadmill or on my assault bike. Like everybody thinks that people sitting on lawn chairs, quick, shoving noodles in their mouth or shoving like anybody who's never done one of these assumes that people go and eat full blown meals out on course, especially in later stages because you see it. You see some of the best of the best eating sandwiches and eating. It's wild. So is this uh, I, is this very 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 atypical?
2: No, I mean I know plenty of people who go who go with, with nothing but fluids. Here. Yeah, for a hundred? There's plenty of people who go with, yeah, I mean, like Anthony, he goes with nothing but, but fluids and ketones. That was the other thing, though, we messed around with ketones. So we, we, we like to experiment a lot. So we we try all kinds of stuff.
0: <laughs> that might be the understatement of the Kunkel year. <laughs> we like to experiment.
2: We like, he let he, he experienced a little bit more illicitly than I do, but, uh, but, but that's okay you know um i'm i'm all for uh having fun and trying things out and seeing what works and what doesn't um so yeah fluids 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 are what work for me but they don't necessarily work for everybody now and and on the subject of like at the, the entire time i had my team ready with like a jet boil and so they can heat up like some warm broth for me or some bone broth Um, just because that like warm fluids when you're freezing make you feel infinitely better and you know you can even put one in like your little bladder um, and you'll be fine. I will say the only time I've eaten solids during a race recently was when I paced Jones at Leadville because we were moving at a pace that allowed it you know but otherwise I just stick to liquids because it's it's what's most efficient and it lets me hydrate at the same time you know. Um, I guess that kind of goes into tip number three make sure that you're hydrating adequately. Um, you know, most of us need somewhere between 16 to 24 ounces of water per hour. And I stick to that like religiously. Um, I, I stuck to 20 ounces an hour uh, during URA. At some points I would bump it up to 24 ounces an hour. And that that like did it for me. You know, I was, I was good. Only a few times I fell behind on nutrition and hydration. And it wasn't for a lack of planning so much as it was like, because there was so much vert and gnarliness between me and the next aid station that I would go 15 minutes to a half an hour over um my my time to like actually make sure I was getting calories and um and even then I had extra calories like I had emergency goose on me or something but you know that that lack of water for a half an hour is is like kind of dangerous I was lucky that it was at night so it wasn't as cold or it wasn't as hot you know um tip number 4 is I don't, don't, don't neglect the, the mobility, um, you know, especially with these, like this, this was a really interesting experiment because I had never done hundred mile weeks before. I've done a lot of seventies, a lot of eighties, you know, leading up to um, Spartan ultra champs last year, I was doing roughly 75 to 85 miles a week with like 20 to 25,000 feet of vert a week. And, um, I, I just like, I, I, I lost my train of thought guys. What was I saying? Mobility. Mobility. Um, So I I started to notice, you know, like little things kind of creeping up on you, like a sore Achilles or, you know, sort of tightness um, in the back of my knees or in my hamstrings or something. And so that was an indication to me that I need to make sure to move on those things. So paying attention to your body and making sure that you're like following through with your mobility and not neglecting it both before and after training sessions is really, 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 really important because then you also can avoid getting injured. You know, if you're adequately stretching your Achilles, if you're running hundred miles a week and doing tons of vert, you're gonna be able to continue to like, improve upon what you're doing as far as your training block is concerned. Um, and I think the last thing is, you know, but am I on number three? Was that three or four guys?
1: That was four, that was four I think. That was
2: four. Number five, um, discipline. Just stick to it. Um, doesn't matter if you're feeling it or not. Just do whatever it is that you have to do. Um, you know, if you have a prescribed workout and it's say go run uh, eight mile loop with 2,500 feet of gain that day and you're just not feeling it, just go do it because you'll be 15 to 20 minutes in and you'll either be into it or you'll be like, "Well, I have to finish now because I'm you know this far away from my car, so I might as well just keep going." So just stick to it. Be disciplined. Like, like I said, motivation will get you started.
0: Well, and that's ultra training, right? What? Like if you're prepping for track or cross country, if you're not feeling an eight-mile hilly loop, go do it flat. But is there anything more ultra-specific? That, that, that mentality of do it because it has to be done, that's race-specific training, mm-hmm. even if it's an easy day. Yeah. And that's huge. Yeah. But what I'm getting at is like, do the work, you
2: know? So like, like you said, it's like, if, if you have, and it's kind of funny, cause we're going to be doing some, some tracky stuff and some, some fast, this, this entire next training box is going to spicy. Um, it's like, just do it. Just, just do the work. You know, when, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean like, if it's an eight mile hilly workout, go do the eight mile hilly workout. It's like, just go do the workout. So if, it, if you want to just change it up to eight on flat, eight on flat, um, but because you're still doing the work, you know, um, and, that, and that's okay. Like, and, and I'm all for, like, adap- adapting and modifying. Like, this is obviously what, what works for me. And, like, for me, like, I am a highly um, driven person, and if I make a, a promise or a commitment to myself, like, there is nothing that gets in the way of, of meeting that there was a time where where I allowed things and excuses to creep in and stuff, but that's gone. That's been gone. Um, And so for me, it's like, the work has to get done one way or another. And very few, I had one down week um, in the course of my training block. And it's because we had like, several family emergencies stack up on top of each other and it was still an 83 mile week with 20,000 feet of hurt so it's like it wasn't it wasn't it was my down week you know because otherwise it was 100 mile weeks with 20 25 to 30,000 feet you know um so
0: so I want to talk about that actually this was something I, I was looking forward to talking to you about specifically you were hitting 75 to 85 I love Strava stalking people now you're running 100 consistently, and it's funny because I had surgery scheduled, and I always do something big right before a surgery, like that's become my thing: have a surgery, but do something big before it, so that my week after, where I'm just in bed, I don't feel as bad. I decided I had to run my first 100 mile week, and I ran my first 100 mile week, and I look at your Strava and see you haven't missed a 100 mile week, <laughs> like over and over and over. And it struck me that even though I could do it, I had to do it in a specific way. I had to remove anaerobic running. I had to remove a lot of my strength training because I was not prepared to go up to that level of stress while maintaining my current level of other types of stress. And so I wanna know exactly like, what did your typical 75 mile week look like holistically compared to what it became and how did you bridge those two to be able to handle it? You said you're a durable guy, but you've had injuries in the past. How did you handle it so well?
2: Um I mean, so, you know, I've been running for a minute, so that helps like i have i I have like the capacity to withstand a lot of stress because when I started really taking training and running seriously, you know it was what kind of end of twenty twelve start of twenty thirteen um. I, I mean, for me, like back then, a good week was like 30 to 40 miles, you know, maybe 50 miles. And since then, it's like slowly progressed and grown over time. Um, but most of my training before was very like OCR centric to where I was doing like, you know, three days of, of strength mixed in with compromised running. And then five days a week, I was running just, you know, no matter what, something. You know um and i know people will go back and forth about like the topic of junk miles and what have you but um i i don't you know because of the nature of the distances i was focusing on 50k and above there really really isn't such thing like as long as you're putting in the miles as long as you're creating that that like stimulus then you're good um and so that's what we were doing you know is that when i was doing those 75 to 85 mile weeks I was doing roughly three days of strength, um, with specific work focused on the event that I was training for. So for Spartan Ultra, it was a lot of like focusing, I, I believe more on focusing on your weaknesses. Your strengths are going to be your strengths. That's it. But I was focused on in a lot of my weaknesses. And what I was terrified of because I ran into issues at, um, at Spartan Montana at the Ultra was that second time going through Olympus with the new like slip slicky stuff. Uh, I didn't make it to the end and I, was about three quarters of the way through, and I just didn't have anything left in me, and I can either sit there another 30 seconds to a minute, and old Miguel might have done that, and I've learned from that mistake because it's cost me monies and and podiums before, and so I realized that there was a penalty loop, so I just dropped did the penalty loop, but that stuck in my mind and that, okay, you have to put in the specific work so that when you go do this for 24 hours, there's no question that you're going to get through it every single time. And so for me, it was putting in, like in specific, you know, um, lockout work. I talked to to Aaron about it because he provided a huge like sort of uh, under better understanding of like what it takes. So shout out to Aaron Newell. Um, so I started doing a lot of Frenchies and a lot of lockout specific stuff so that when I would come into these obstacles, it wouldn't be an issue. There wouldn't be a problem, you know. Um, and I knew that there was going to be a lot of climbing in that race and luckily I live in Durango where basically there's no such thing as flat except for the track. Everywhere you go here, you're, you're gonna you're gonna climb no matter what. Um, and so so yeah, I just when it came to bridging that gap into transitioning into ultras um, I, I held on to strength prop a little longer than I should have, but I kind of came to the realization that I don't need as much strength as maybe other um, Ultra marathoners or other running athletes do because I've spent so much time already developing that in the past. To where the strength work that I'm doing now is just based on the terrain that I am running I mean, my my favorite training loops out here. There's one that's about uh, 2,000 feet of gain and eight miles, and there's another one that's um, 3.9 miles and 2,700 feet of gain. And you know, going up and down that three times in a row that's plenty of strength work. You know, that, that gave, that gives me exactly what I need for the race that I'm going to run. You know, in this case for your it was like kind of a matter of learning how to use poles better, which I can still, I still need to continue to learn how to do that better because there's some people who fly with them. I'm still very much a novice in that sense. Um, But you know, there's a climb here called Smelter mountain, which is one mile and a thousand feet a game. And just doing repeats on that with the poles, so that i can get used to the sensation of having my shoulders loaded and stuff like that and just like accepting certain things as far as how my body's going to feel and knowing where where it's going to be um and then i think the last component which often gets neglected is nutrition with that I'll be honest, um, much like a lot of athletes, I've had like some, some body dysmorphia and, and I've also like undulated in weight throughout the years a lot. And uh, it's only recently that I've really like kind of started to narrow it down and have a better understanding of like where my body sits and what it does. And so for the first time ever, I just fed the machine. And I actually sat down and spoke to, to Yancy's wife, who's a sports dietitian, and she had me increase like drastically the amount of carbohydrates that I was taking in, both not just um, during training, which I was already doing, but like outside of training. And so that nutrition uh, like component was really a big piece that was missing for a long time. And I finally, like, I'm like, oh, like I do need to eat more. Oh, like I do need to like make a conscious effort to consume carbohydrates, even though in the past I wasn't necessarily doing it. And that that's really made a huge difference. Like eating well, like fueling properly outside of training has been such a like amazing, like discovery for me that it it's made things infinitely easier. Um, and so when it came time to stack up the mileage, you know, I did like a slow rule of 10 buildup leading to it. I went on vacation real quick to Belize for a week and then jumped right in. And the week before that I hit 97 and then went on vacation, came back, jumped right into hundred mile weeks and was just like, okay, like, this is, this is, this is going to hurt. This is going to feel uncomfortable and I'm going to learn from it. And I just kind of felt things out in my body and, uh, and just made sure to kind of like eat enough so that I would feel good. And I did, I, I ate plenty and I, and I, I had the energy every single time to go out for that run, you know. The only issue that I started to run into was just like like I had mentioned before, was those little um nuances of the body like Achilles being sore or the backs of my knees being sore or tight and just be and just adjusting to those things and being like, okay. I need to like properly mobilize and stretch more often throughout the day. Like we've been sitting here talking for a while, but I, this is actually a standing desk. And so while I'm sitting here working most of the day, I'm like balancing, or I'm doing different things to like, stay, stay like, you know, fresh and feel good.
0: (laughs) So what's a breakdown of a typical week? Are you just hitting runs every day or do you have scheduled long or back to back? Do you have any anaerobic work? What are you doing throughout a week?
2: During, for the year A block, I had strides two days a week where I was blending them in um, usually like say on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, Just about every day was double runs and if it wasn't double runs then it meant that I was going to be doing a long run. (laughs) So uh, most days I was trying to hit anywhere between 16 to 20 miles in a day so I'd split that into two. Um, I would do a combination of treadmill and trail or treadmill and a little bit of road here by my house cause it rolls. So there's going to be gain no matter what, if I needed an easier day, that's usually what I would do is that I would do some rolling road instead of going to the trail across the road. Um, mobility just about every morning, although I stopped tracking it after a while. Cause initially I'll like track stuff to kind of keep myself accountable. And then once I set up, once I establish like a really good habit, I won't necessarily track it cause I just am like intrinsic about it. So just about every morning when I would wake up and work my first few hours, I would do specific mobility, a little bit of specific, like very gentle sort of strength just to kind of maintain things and um, then go on a run like mid-morning or early morning and then work throughout the day, go on another run at the end of the workday, you know. And sometimes I would require waking up at 4 a.m. and doing my first training session and then doing my other training session at six p.m., you know, and then coming home and having dinner and rinse and repeat six days a week uh, to the point where you get tired about it. <laughs>
0: um, and one long day a week was that seventh day. Yeah, that
2: sixth or seventh day where it's like I haven't seen you in bed one morning this week, and it's like, yeah, sorry. So, um, but I but but that was also an off. Do you take an off day? Um. Yeah, I, I would usually. I mean, not like a total off day, but it would kind of be like maybe a mile or two or it would be you know like going for a hike or like kind of more active recovery focus but for the most part i was like five to six days a week occasionally seven um you know and 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 i would do one long day where i would be doing like either time-based or mileage-based so usually it was kind of more time-centric where it's like four to five hours of like putting in continuous effort or it would be 25 miles, you know, because I had run 75 miles already and I and I set this goal and I have to meet this goal and that's it. Um, and so that usually involved doing a triple half hook, which is that that route that I said that's about 3.9 miles up at 2,700 feet. And I would just do that three times in a row starting at like 4.30 or morning. So yeah, it's good times.
1: What does an ultra runner have to eat, Miguel? Like uh, you said that it was eye-opening for you.
0: Sardines and mangoes. If you're a cunkle.
1: No, um, I want to understand understand volume of food. That's what I want people to understand. Like you weren't eating enough, and you weren't eating enough carbohydrates. So what kind of volume does a a 100-mile-a-week mountain ultra runner need? Why don't you walk us through what a day might look like? Uh, I'm fascinated by nutrition, and I think it is number one behind sleep. I don't think you can outperform bad sleep, but I think getting – we're historically underfueled as endurance athletes. I believe it. We try to stay lean and mean and grr, and really we're just walking around empty. So I want you to hone in on this.
2: Um so I, I think briefly I just want to touch on the fact I have done monk mode. Like I was I was like um like version one of monk mode for Bandera. So we did like the fat adaptive thing and like timing specific carbohydrates and working with ketones and stuff, and it worked really well for me. But um, it isn't sustainable for, like, me from a financial standpoint because I eat so much. And also it isn't sustainable because cooking two completely different meals for two people living in the same house just is not sustainable. Like, um, so with that being –
1: I've always – like, to interject real quick, I went uh, complete keto for a month a few years ago. Tested my blood ketones twice a day. Made sure I was in ketosis. Um, and I was for about four weeks straight. And to this day, that is the most miserable month of my life. Every run felt like absolute dog shit. Every, I mean, it was just like, how do people perform on this and yet people do? And not that we need to tangent on on that, but man, did it affect me in a big way so for me I'll never touch it again I gave it a full month I mean zero grams of carbohydrates maybe some grams and spices I was that low um, really high in fat ketosis for sure um, was I missing something or some people just built for it some so way?
2: so I'm we're not we're not um, doing ketosis like we're not we're not doing the keto diet like when I did this I was still eating like pounds of vegetables. I was just very selective about my vegetables, you know, like I was eating roughly uh, like 15 to 20 servings of vegetables a day. They were just high fiber vegetables. So it was a negligible amount of carbohydrates because of the amount of fiber that I was ingesting. Um, so like, you know, just about every meal, I would have a salad bowl about this big and I still pretty much do to this day. Um, and, and then, you know, I would stack it up with fat fat and everything else. And then when it came time to train, If it was going to be an effort longer than like two hours that's when like the carbohydrates would come into play or if we were going to have like a three or four hour run the next morning then the night before we would do like a starchy like low fiber um meal you know or with plenty of carbohydrates anywhere between 150 to 200 and then you know that next morning like you you felt like a like a rock star during the run you know and about an hour and 30 minutes into it when you start to feel a little lull you take that little bump of ketones and then suddenly it's just like it's it's still on and you're and you're at the same time that you're doing that run you're still taking carbohydrates so i want to like dispel this idea that we're like ketogenic because that wasn't it like it's just Having, that's what I was think, think more think more along the lines of nutrient timing so where we are timing when we're taking in those carbohydrates now as far as what I'm doing now I am eating buckets of carbohydrates um, because again like I, I have to do something that's like sustainable both for my wallet and for like my partner and I and so um, I mean I, I just I still eat you know 12 servings of vegetables a day. So like in the morning breakfast will be two eggs, two pieces of Ezekiel bread, kind of make it into like a sandwich or I'll do like a scramble with three or four eggs and a bunch of vegetables mixed into it. I'll still do like a big old salad. So that's two or three servings of vegetables right there, drizzle olive oil on it. And, um, you know, I might have like a fruit, um, a couple hours later or something like that, or I'll do like some cottage cheese and fruit with that. So this is all like breakfast lunch will be like
1: you're getting up and running faster you didn't mention anything before your run
2: no um i don't i don't i don't really take it if if my runs less than an hour i i won't take anything um like especially let me rephrase that right now because everything is unstructured i'm just like doing fitness for fitness's sake so it's just if i go for a run i'm just gonna run probably for less than an hour so I don't need fuel and I don't need water because I'm running right outside of my house. Um, if I'm doing chores, you know, like around the house, like moving the compost pile, cleaning out the chicken coop, um, whatever needs to be done around around the farm, then I'll drink water. But that's about it. That's, that's all I've been doing. But when it comes to training, um, then, yeah, I'll take in 65 to 75 grams of carbohydrates before that training session. Um, if the training session will go anywhere between two to three hours, then I'll be doing that same amount of carbohydrates per hour in addition to the 20 to 24 ounces of water per hour. So,
1: yeah, I just, I just want to, I just want to make sure. So I'm, I'm sort of adding up calories in my head. I want people to understand how much volume it actually takes. So at breakfast, you're at two slices of Ezekiel bread, a couple of eggs. You got a bunch of veggies on there, some olive oil, which adds a couple hundred calories, salad all that so you're probably eating like a 700 calorie breakfast or 800 calorie breakfast probably yeah that sounds about
2: right. yeah and lunch and lunch will probably will be probably the same the only difference is that i i don't like i've noticed this is like one thing i took away from doing the fat adaptive thing with anthony is that when i would take carbs in the for lunch um if i wasn't careful it would cause me to crash you know and like I would start dealing with like being sleepy and tired um, while I was working and so I stopped doing that now I just do like a really big dense fatty protein filled salad for for lunch um, so I'll do the sardines or I'll do the kipper snacks and I'll do um, olive oil and a bunch of vegetables and I'll, I might throw some boiled eggs on it too um, and that'll that'll get me through till like maybe three or four o'clock where I'll I'll have a snack, you know, I'll have some fruit and maybe some peanut butter or something like that. And then dinner, honestly, is usually my biggest meal of the day and it'll be anywhere between 800 to 1,000 calories. Um, So I'm still probably underfed overall, but I'm eating more than I was before and I'm making the conscious effort to take in roughly 250 to 300 calories per hour of training in addition to water, you know. And immediately after training, um, I'm doing, so I I got really good about this and I don't recall the study that I read, but it was roughly 25 grams of carbohydrates and me, of of protein and 65 grams of carbohydrates immediately after training, like within that 30 minute window, that's supposedly magical. Um, And then two hours later, making sure that I was eating actual food with roughly the equivalent amount of protein and carbohydrates. And that like showed a lot of uh, improvement in terms of like recovery. So that I've kind of stuck to that and, and I feel great. So,
1: Okay. I've tracked mine. I'm about four thousand a day, um, thirty-five to four thousand. I'm only running, you know, seven hours a week, six hours a week. But I eat a lot, so I figured you'd be eating at least that. Maybe you are eating a little less than I thought, but sounds like more comparatively.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, um, I'm eating more than I have been, which which is good. Um, and it's and it's hard because because like food is expensive, <laughs> but but I do my best, you know, um, and and. And the big thing has just been taking calories during like consistently, you know, and making sure that I'm just forcing myself to eat more carbohydrates. Like I'll just add like a scoop of rice to dinner or something like that. Or, you know, I'll just add things just to like, I'll kind of force myself to eat a little bit more um, than I, than I usually would. But when you're, you know, five weeks deep into a hundred mile training block, like it, it, you, you are never not hungry It and it's, and it's kind of fun because you're just eating and eating and uh and it feels
0: good so yeah <laughs> i'm curious about your goal when you set i set myself this promise to myself i'm going to run 100 miles every week because there's that it's like a glamorous thing in running it's uh it's almost like a mystic number and in reality it's no different than 95 or 105 like hitting 100 is powerful there's no magic to it but there's magic in how you get there it puts people up into that double digits hours of running, you know, cl- closer to 20 than 10, if you're doing tens of thousands of feet of vert and all that. So I, I'm curious, two parts, A, why did you choose that? And then B, what did you feel different? Like what, what hit you differently afterwards? What did that block of hundred mile a week do for your fitness and your mind?
2: Um, so I think first it was the fact that I'd never done anything like that before. You know, I remember running with, with Anthony and running with like, you know, Durango's is saturated with like talent um, and skill. And so a lot of people out here do that. And to me, it seemed like, kind of like you said, like it's, it's sort of like this distant thing. And I was just like, can I do this? Like, am I, am I physically capable? It's like, I've done 75 to 85 with this much vert. It's, you know, It's only 15 to 20 miles more a week or, you know, anywhere between 15 to 25 miles more a week of my average. How's my body going to handle that? And is it going to be magical? And like, from what I recall, from what I've read, it's like roughly, there's like, you know, it's, it's like the law of diminishing returns where it's like the, the gains that you make at 75 miles are like significant if you're consistent with it versus if you go up to like a hundred miles, like you're still making improvements, but then you start running into that diminishing returns game when it comes to the potential of injury and stuff. But I'm kind of at that point where it's like, okay, well, you know, adapt or die. Um, so I want to, I want to try it. I want to see how my body holds up and see what it feels like and, going into your second question, how did that feel? I felt, I felt bulletproof. I mean, I know that's like a, like a, like a sort of cliche thing to say, but it's like, when I was about four weeks into running a hundred miles like that, five weeks into running a hundred miles, I was just like, like nothing phased me in training anymore. You know, um, I, I wasn't worried about, about anything except for just making sure that I was staying on top of that mobility, recovery, eating, and sleep. But the training sessions themselves were no longer daunting because it was just kind of like the work that had to be done to achieve what I want to achieve, and that's it. Um, and and I think, you know, if if anything, I just noticed that, like, I had – I know I said I'm durable, but, but like, paces and efforts became – easy for lack of a better term like you know going up a pathlin that that trail that i talked about being able to do do that loop three times back to back and being able to do it every time in 60 to 65 minutes felt really good and the fact that i was like you know there was i think my very last session i was like debating whether i should go up a fourth time and just make it a 50k and i didn't because i have. You know prior commitments time wise but it's just kind of like you come into this point where you like feel like a machine and that feels really cool yeah. you know um like there's there's nothing there's nothing stopping you and that that was a really cool feeling and now for this next training block we're kind of going to take roughly that same like arbitrary mileage goal but we're going to mix it in with speed and we're going to taper down the, the vert because I don't need it um, for, for, for what's up next. So it's just strictly like, you know, focus on, focus on like developing the speed that I'm going to need with the durability that I already have in order to like achieve the next big goal.
0: Some runners will laugh at me when I say this, but I did one 100 mile week and I learned a lot from it. A lot of people are like, oh, I remember my first beer. Like, it like it, it, was impactful. I learned a lot. And one thing I learned is that I, by day five, an hour run didn't feel like work anymore. No. A 90-minute run didn't feel like work. If I woke up sore on day two, I thought, I don't know if I can do day three. I woke up sore on day five and thought, yeah, I could probably get 15. <laughs> you know, it's just a different mindset. And what I realized is even if I personally shouldn't do this every week, if i had the goal of a big nasty gritty race this would change me for how i would be able to handle such a thing i can't say it made me faster but it sure made me faster 90 minutes into a run on tired legs
2: yeah tired legs don't don't feel like much anymore like it just kind of is the feeling and you're just kind of like present with it um and that's and that's really cool like you just I think a lot of times when you go on runs, regardless of the distance, regardless of how long or short the run is, it's really easy to get caught up in your head and start to like drift off into different places. And, you know, maybe some of that is like to protect yourself from the pain that you're inducing on yourself. Um, But I kind of started to find that it became easier for me to be present in like the moment. And like, that's kind of something that I chase is like being present. And that was something really special about your ray. Cause like someone's like, how do you run for 30 hours? And I was just like, they're like, what are you thinking about? What do you, what's going through your head? And it's like, honestly, nothing is going through my head. Like I am just completely a hundred percent invested in like what I am doing at that time. And that's really nice because generally speaking, my brain is like going 17 directions at once. And it's like really hard on me. Um, and it and it and and it's nice to like to just feel completely like at peace with yourself and one with yourself and like and like one with like what you're trying to achieve and what you're trying to do and it's just like this this like sublime experience of like the only time I ever feel in my life that I'm like truly doing what I'm supposed to be doing and like truly free from like you know for for lack of a of, of a better term like from from like the chains of of responsibility is like when I'm just 45 miles into a hundred mile race and there's nobody around me. It's just like, you know, 14,000 foot mountains and marmots off in the distance. And it's like
1: magical. Do you have a life when you're training heavily, when you're in these hundred mile weeks, do you have a life outside of training? I imagine with a full-time job, two a day runs, like when, if ever, are you able to fit in anything else? I think a lot of people listen to this and go, well, that's not possible for me. Like, I don't have the time or I can't. No, I get training. up at 4 a.m. Yeah, just like, do you have a do you have a life in those big training blocks outside of training? Are you able to or is it pretty, does it have to be very narrow focused for that period of time? Um,
2: I have a life because I have a partner that is trying to be supportive of what I'm doing and so I have to take her needs and uh, you know like her as like a person into account whenever I make these these decisions of like training like this and doing this and so um, I do have a life yeah so I, I work 40 to 50 hours a week generally. It's only recently that I've like decided that I'm going to work a little less because it was also just becoming too stressful to work that much, in addition to trying to train fifteen to twenty hours a week. Um, so, I mean, I get up early. I get up when I'm in a training block. I'm getting up at at 4.30, 5.30. You know, if I have to go do a long run, I'm getting up at three thirty, and I'm going to go do the work. And then when I get home, I'm going to clock on and I'm going to get paid to do my job. You know, um, and then after that, I'm going to train again, and then I'm going to have dinner and spend time like quality time with my partner and i'm going to make the active effort of getting in as much mileage and time of training done before the weekend hits because like the weekend is the only time that that meredith and i are off from like work and so i need to do as much as i could before the weekend so that we can actually like enjoy life together and that for me my life um Isn't a whole lot of socializing as far as like spending time with people at like bars and restaurants and, you know, doing things like that. But my life is like, let's go forage for mushrooms or let's go camping or uh, let's like, you know, go, 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 uh, take care of some like house chores. Like we bought a fixer upper and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to come home one of these days and Meredith's going to be like a quarter of the way into a new project and, uh, I'm just going to jump in it with her and get it done, you know. But, but I do have a life. Um, but, but, you know, you do make a sacrifice for these big, big, big training weeks. And whenever someone says that they don't have the time, I kind of shrug my shoulders at that because you can just get up earlier, and it sucks. But if you really want it, you're going to do it. Like, I'm not going to lie to you, waking up at 3.30 after having gone to bed at 11 at night sucked. But I got to go do that 25-mile run or 30-mile run or whatever it is. And that's it and like that's the commitment that's the that's like the promise i made and um, and if i'm going to achieve what i want to achieve that's what it's going to take period you know cuz i know that like the people that i'm competing with and as i continue to to chase this uh, i'm going to compete against better talented better trained you know smarter um more hardworking people
1: than me and so the only way to keep up the only way to be able to throw down is
2: to match that or exceed it. And that's what I'm going to do. I,
1: I was being facetious with how I phrased that. I hope you know that. <laughs> I know you have a life, but a life outside of training is difficult to manage. So I wanted to hear how you manage that. Cause uh, I did some perusing on your Instagram before this, and you very much do have hobbies outside of running. So I knew that. Yeah,
2: no, I mean, it's, I get tunnel vision. I'm like, I'm like a horse with race blinders and, um, if I was left up to my own devices I wouldn't have a life. I would just be like you know, living in a closet um and just and just putting in work um but I'm glad that's not the case, you know. <laughs> I'm glad that is not the case.
0: So you alluded to this, you're only going to find bigger monsters. You you're going to qualify yourself for bigger beatdown scenarios, which means you have to be ready for them. And so if if you found that doing these 100-mile weeks that's your ticket but it also makes it very hard to sustain for months at a time because of that. So are you looking at doing some sort of maintenance blocks where you're just doing 75-85 and then you do your monk mode where you're hitting your 100-mile weeks and doing everything as like training camp before a race? Are you going to try to make your life conducive to always hitting those higher weeks so that you're always ready to go? What's your plan? I haven't got that far yet. Um let him enjoy his wind. bracket. Yeah, Jesus,
2: cry me. I, look, I no, no, it's true though. Um I told myself that I was going to give myself a month of unstructured time, a month of just letting myself do what I want to do because I want to avoid burnout. And so you know, that's that's always like a very real possibility when it comes to endurance sports is burnout. I've experienced it and it's like severely set me back before. Um so I like this month so i finished A, and i felt pretty good all things considered like the worst part of finishing A was the chafing the chafing was i i used uh trail toes on my groin and that was probably the wrong the wrong way to go by it and uh i hurt after that but otherwise i felt good like i i felt like jogging like you know the next day and i i do like maybe little tiny bits um And otherwise, like I tried to do like a little rowing workout and like just, you know, a couple days after when the DOM sets in and every and all the inflammation sets in was kind of where I was like, okay, farm chores, um, keep it unstructured, go for farm chores, dog walks, hikes, um, kind of just enjoy being a human being who isn't like training for anything. But otherwise, that is kind of the plan. Like after, you know, I'm going to do these four months of building up. And then I'm going to do my race. And then after that, I'll probably, depending on how things feel, I'll probably have like a little two-week like absolute rest where I'm kind of doing what I've been doing now. And then I'll jump into like maintenance where it's like, like you said, 70 to 80 mile weeks, but like very gentle on the body. And like just fitness for fitness sake, for lack of a better term. Um, But, I mean, the long-term goal is just compete. That the highest level that I can achieve, you know um, and i and I've been dancing around this enough uh i'm I'm gonna go get a golden ticket in January, like that's the goal, so I did Bandera last year and I was in second for about forty three miles, and I hit a wall because i mess I made some crucial errors, and I finished in like fourth you know, not even realizing that I was in fourth until this, the last aid station or second to last aid station. And so then I was trying to play catch up. Um, and so I got a little bit of a, of a, of a fun chip on my shoulder for that. And so the goal is to go out and throw down and, and try and compete again. Not try, fuck that. Go compete and go, go win that shit or at least give it everything I can.
0: So you're just locked in on Western States.
2: Yeah. And and I'm locked in on Western, Like honestly. When it comes to like time to go race at Western, regardless of who's racing, like I don't care if Jim Walmsley's running, I don't care if any I don't I it's not even about that. It's like just go out, throw down, run your hardest, best race that you can, and you know, let the chips fall where they may. I don't care if I finish in twentieth, I don't care if I finish in tenth, I don't care if I finish in the podium. I just love to like leave everything out there on that course. There's something really special about knowing that you you gave every single bit of yourself to that effort and that there was nothing else you can do. And some days it ends in a win and some days it doesn't, but just set the goal and, and, and chase it. And that's it, man. Like I, after Western, who knows, but, but I just, I know that I have, you know, I'm 34. Um, I know what the, what the literature says as far as like endurance athletes are concerned. So it's like, I'm gonna maximize that time while I got the opportunity. I can rest after. And, and I got some little stuff. So like Anthony and I have, uh, we got like a little local mountain race that'll just be like a training day, uh, Mount Marmot and that's just up at the ski resort. And then I'm doing uh, my first cross country race. I've never done a cross country race. There's a fall classic here in October. Um, that should be interesting. I'm excited to just get totally like destroyed by kids who weigh 120 pounds. Um, so that'll be really cool. And then I got, uh,
1: Like an 8K or something? 5K? AK. It's the
2: the fall classic is 5K here. So it's, you know, 3.1. Um, and it's mostly on grass on call on the college campus. So I've never done anything like that before. Um, so that'll be really interesting. I have a pair of spikes that i used once when we did, uh, OCR stars. And I tried to do my mile, and I ran uh, that in. I, oof, that was the worst mile of my life. I ran a 5:25. Can run much faster than that.
1: Where um, where your shortest split shorts? Mm. For yeah, sure. two inch. Two inches is um, what I got. Make sure they can see as much of your thigh as possible. Oh, yep.
2: yeah. Um, and then I got a I got a 50k to kind of sharpen up at the beginning of December. That's like my last like real. Um, hard effort, so to speak. And I'll be about four weeks out at that point, or I guess, yeah, four weeks out from Bandera. So, And, and like a turkey trot, just because, but it depends on which one. If I'm on the East Coast, I'll do, I'll find one out there. If not, I'll do the one here, which is like a
0: five-month. Excellent. So you, you said you want to optimize the time you have. And, and I think I've been running right around 20 years competitively. And I think one training block Did I ever look back on and say everything arrived perfectly? I spent the perfect amount of time in every stage and I couldn't have got any more out of it, but I didn't leave anything on the table either. Usually I get almost every other time, but that one, I get to the end of it and I either think, let's say it was a 12 week prep or or a, a 24 week prep. I got everything I needed by week nine. And then I was kind of in a holding pattern like, oh, I wish the race would get here. Or you get to the end and wish, I just wish I had three or four more weeks or however long it is. I've almost never felt like I perfected it. It was always I got it in time and then I had to wait or I didn't have enough time to really get it all in. What did this last one feel like for you? Like all those hundred mile weeks, were were they the correct number? Or did you get most of it by a certain point? Or did you wish you had a few more?
2: Um, no, I, I feel like I, like I did, I came out to do what I wanted to do. You know, I actually tapered, started my taper a week earlier. Um, I tend to feel like a two week taper is enough time for me. I've done three week tapers before. And most of the time I've done a three week taper. I feel like shit by the final week. And I hate that feeling. Um, mm-hmm. for Bandera, I did a two week taper and it was really nice to feel so like snappy and like be foaming at the mouth. And so for your I did a three week taper because I had family come into town uh, three weeks out. And there was just, there was going to be no way I can do a hundred miles a week. So I still did like, I just cut it down by a third. So I did 66.7 miles or whatever, you know? Um, and so I'd say that was probably the only, the only like, I don't want to call it a con, but it was like the only thing that I wish I could have maybe had one more week out of, but who knows? Cause maybe that was like, the key to me you know having such a good race day was having that time to rest after mm-hmm. 3 weeks and i will say that i was like i was i was starting to feel the mileage and the time on feet like not so much physically but more so like um kind of mentally and emotionally start to stack up so yeah was it becoming a chore it was starting to become a bit of a chore yeah you know cuz it's like yeah I, I got a life. I got to work. You know, I mean, after when we're done, like I got to work three more hours today, you know? Um, so it's like, um, like I, I, which is not, not, uh, it just is what it is, you know? So like this block otherwise went perfect. Obviously like hindsight is 2020. There's little things I wish I could have changed or done better, but I did the best given the scenario that I was in. Like I work full time. I have to run all these miles. So You know, I wish I could have run less on the treadmill and spent more time on trail, but that wasn't feasible having to work, you know, 40 to 50 hour weeks. Um, So the treadmill was convenient. Um, And the treadmill gave me uh, no excuses, which was really cool. You know, it was like, doesn't care if I'm tired, doesn't care if I feel like I don't have the time, like I'm going to put the time in. You know, there were some days where I didn't get my first run in, so it ended up becoming a 16 mile run on the treadmill, which really sucked. But you know, hour and a half in, who cares? You're almost done. Um, so I mean, this—I'll be honest—this was probably one of my best training blocks of my life. Um, the only other time I felt like I had this good of a training block was in 2017 before Mark and I went out to go in with um, the world stuff smutter in 2017. So now it's like, I can, now that I've done it, like I know I can replicate it, you know, and also just being a more disciplined like person and a more disciplined athlete. Like I really just dialed in the little things during this block. And I know that it's that I can like replicate that, you know,
0: when you replicate it, would you follow it pretty exactly? Or would you pick and choose? Did you, how many weeks, I guess what I'm asking is, how many weeks did you do a hundred mile weeks when you started your build up? How long was that progress? You hit it and then how long did you hold for?
2: So the build up was, I want to say six to eight weeks. So like I started mm-hmm. somewhere around like 50 or 60 mile weeks, but I was already stacking a bunch of vert, which I was comfortable with. And I'm like, you know what? I need to like, just start tacking it on. Um, and so then like, I think my next week was like Sixty-seven or something. I just followed the rule of ten, um, and so by the time I hit ninety-seven point five miles, uh, I was you know six to eight weeks into like that phase of, of training, um, and I was like right on the cusp of a hundred. And I almost like went out for one more run just to hit a hundred. But I'm like, no, no. It's like you want this feeling. You want to know that there's something there that you got to get when you get back from vacation. Um, and so I went on vacation for a week in Belize and, and had a good time and uh, lost a bunch of important things that floated out to sea and then luckily recovered them, which was crazy. That's a story for another time. Um, and then I jumped into to that 100-mile-a-week training block. And so I had I, – I think I did my math wrong because I thought I was going to have 10 full weeks of 100 miles, and I ended up having nine full weeks of 100 miles. Okay. So – or something like that. Yeah, I think nine weeks.
0: And what do you think your minimum effective dose would have been? Like, how many could you have gotten away with and still had your performance? Or was all were all nine necessary? I mean, probably somewhere between seven seven to eight would have been enough. Um, but I
2: but I think I think given how daunting the task was, um, it was necessary to to pursue something like that. You know, it was, it was an exercise in, in execution to like, be like, okay, you said you're going to do a hundred mile weeks. You're, you know, that's what you're going to do. It's just like when you're out there on course and it's like, you said you were going to do this race, like that, you're not going to quit that. Like the only way you're coming off is if you're dead or, you know, you don't have the physical capacity of finishing that race. Um. And that's not, by the way, like a healthy way of looking at it. I recognize that. I don't think anyone else should do that. This is just what works for me.
0: Um, I don't know if ultra is inherently healthy.
2: uh, I I mean, yeah, I don't. That's that's another conversation. But
0: Uh, let me clarify that. What I mean by that is you don't cross the finish line in better health than you start. Yeah. Nor will you be for several days after. And so if that's inherently unhealthy, certain unhealthy mental practices are almost required. That's a good way of putting it. It's a slippery slope, Yeah, but there is a place for it.
2: No, I agree with that. I'm down with that. That's it's,
0: not the that training for an ultra is unhealthy. I don't want to put no, that no, out no. there, but no, and, and, ultras are destructive. Yeah. Yeah. But
2: they build you up in a different way, which is really cool.
0: A hundred percent.
2: But uh, yeah, no, I've, I felt like it was necessary for me to do that because I had never done it before. And you know, the, the nature, my my reasoning in doing this race was the same reasoning I had with doing, with, with when I started racing, period. It's like something scary and exciting. Um, and originally, my plan this year was actually to go run the Leadville Marathon, get a coin, go run the Leadville 100, and do well at Leadville. Um, but everything, the, you know, both races filled up too quick. I didn't feel like doing a charity race, um, like, you know, to get a spot. And so I was just like, okay, I need to find something that makes me more excited and truly scared. Because honestly, Leadville didn't intimidate me. Um, I, I paced 42 miles of it the year before, and it felt very runnable, which was actually really cool. Like, I still want to go back and run that race because I know it's runnable. Um, but Leadville, but your uh, but A is, it's scary. It's 42,000 feet of elevation gain it's running. That's so much. That's, that's 10,000 more feet, more than 10,000 feet than hard rock, which is right, you know, one town over. Um, and you're running up, you it's 14 climbs, you know, it's, it's a few mountain passes. It's a lot of, it's just, it's scary. And the weather can be crazy. You know, I mean, I lucked out in terms of like rain, I was hoping for rain, but instead I just got like beat down by the sun the entire race and just had to fight to keep my body cool so that I can keep moving. Um, so that was a new experience, but, but it's just the, the training was mimicking that in that it needed to be scary and exciting running for me running hundred mile weeks was going to be scary and exciting. And now the new thing that'll be scary and exciting is running hundred mile weeks and doing it fast. Yeah, that is, you know, cause that's what it's going to take at Western. That's what it's going to take at Bandera. That's what it's going to take. If I actually want to be what I know that I can do and what, when and like, who I know I can be as an athlete, you know?
0: Yeah. And that's tough. That's tough because the hundred mile distance is not the same on these courses. They are totally different. Athletes. Yeah. So this sport has uh, probably for the first time since the advent of shoes undergone a technology revolution, I would say. It's not yet to cycling or you can buy speed, but you almost can. And I look out there and you see people really embracing the shoe boom in your running and training and racing. Primarily, it looks like in VJ. Max. <laughs> I could be wrong on some of that, but you raced in VJ Max and that personally is not a shoe I could wear in a race that um that went that long. I just couldn't. And so obviously you're doing something right in bulletproofing your legs, but what is your entire mindset around not leaning into it and what you're doing with your gear choice?
1: Um
2: so there's two sides to that coin. The first one is affordability. Um you know, I'm, I'm a VJ athlete. And so I, you know, approached VJ before Bighorn in 2019 and was like, I run ultras. uh, You know, I have done this so far. Like, these are the things I achieved. These are what I, the things that I want to do. And I'm looking for a shoe sponsor. And, you know, I, I spoke to, to Matt and Don who I still need to give uh blog stuff to. Sorry, Matt and Don. Um, <laughs> And so I, I run in the max because it's like the shoe that that fit my feet. You know, I tried running in the extreme two, and I have like Hobbit feet, man. like just doesn't work. I can't run more than 20 K in those shoes. Um, excuse me, not the extreme two. the extreme ones. The extreme twos fit great, and the maxes fit great. Um, so uh, I, I just i I like uh ground contact. I like feeling the ground under me. I think it's important to to feel the ground under you. I know that's kind of like counterintuitive to like the way that it feels like the shoe industry and like ultra shoes are going and that it's like getting like shoes are getting beefy and fat. Um, and I just, I don't, I don't like that. Uh, I, that's not to say that I'm against like improvements in technology, especially if they're going to make me a, a faster, better prepared athlete, you know? Um, but, but I run in the max because it's comfortable. It fits me like a glove when I take the insoles out and I'm able to just run and feel good in them and feel,
0: do you replace the insoles with anything or you just run on the footbed? No, I just run on the footbed. I just run on the footbed. There's no seams that bother you or do you do something about that?
2: I got, I got those mud gears. (laughs) I got those super, those super durable socks, man. I mean, they're, they're thick and they hold up to like, I mean, I have the same, I have socks from 2014 that I've yet to replace as far as my gear is concerned. So, um, you know, I, I recently signed on with them as, as an ambassador. Cause I was just like, shit, I need socks. And, uh, I reached out and, and it's going good. You know, their socks are, are super durable. Like for me to have anything from 2014 is, is amazing. Um, so, you know, so it's like, I have a good pair of socks. I keep my feet dry and I'm able to just keep going and, and they, and I like a snug fit. So it's like, there's just enough room for me to not get like too much um, destruction as far as my feet are concerned for some of these longer events. Uh, But not so much so that I'm like unable to, to like descend aggressively or like to do what I need to do in a race, you know? So they fit kind of, I would compare their fit to like the original, like fell from Solomon, you know, the fell uh, the S lab fell crosses, or I guess now they're the speeds. So that's, I like that kind of fit. I've always liked that fit. Um, and then otherwise gear wise, I mean, I was running with rabbit for a minute, so I was running with their shorts, but I just ran in my human octane shorts because they're, they're my compression shorts because they just are, are beefy and durable and, and they feel good, you know? Um, I ran in in this same top right here, this ultra house top, um, that's just light and it's white. So I'm not going to feel as hot running in the sun. And then I just ran in like a Boko hat that absorbs a little bit of moisture every time I needed to soak my head. And I had a Nathan, um, vapor vest that I won at Bandera and I broke a clasp of it and they sent me another one instead of just replacing the clasp because it was in the middle of, uh, of COVID. So um, I should have been switching out between the vests, but what I did was just switch bottles. But usually what I do to transition quick is just switch vests. Cause that way there's no, there's no like time wasted. You just put on your new vest and you keep going. So, but, but my gear choices are kind of just dependent on what I can get. I mean, would I like to be like very specific and meticulous and picky about what I'm using to ha- have like the best possible result? Absolutely. But that's just not realistic because gear is so expensive and. Uh, money is a finite resource. So, I just kind of work with what I got. Like my my running jacket is a my like rain jacket is a event jacket from REI and it's probably like 10 years old that I picked up at a thrift store. And like a lot of the stuff that I train with is stuff that I picked up at thrift stores.
0: Except those sexy lucky pulls. Well, that
2: yeah, that was uh that was a new one. I was really happy to pick that up. But yeah, I Kyle Curtin, um, so he has the, what is it, the Cruel Jewel uh, PR for the 50-mile course, and he's done like the FKT for Tahoe Rim unassisted, and he's he's done Western twice. He's he's a stud, and he was one of my pacers, and he put me in touch with Lucky because I like don't know squat about poles. Like I have like this, the poles I was using for training were like from 2015, and they were just like these heavy clunky poles that did the job. I mean, I trained with them primarily, but Kyle let me a pair of his Leckys for a couple of weeks. And I was like, Oh, this makes a big difference. This is, this is light and compact. Um, I should have had something that I can like put them, stow them away in, but I didn't. So I just ran in that with them in one hand. Um, but yeah, I mean the Lecky, but again, it's like with Lecky, I reached out to them and like we, we created a partnership, you know? And so
0: now I'm, I'm one of their athletes, which I'm really stoked about. Well, hey, I know you got to get to work, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. Yeah, but man. I have two small little questions. First, what tabs do you have up right now? Like, what's your daily distraction? You don't have to say anything that's... No, not- no, I can,
2: I can. I mean, my tabs are... This is, this is a fun question. Uh, hold on. <laughs> I have so many tabs.
0: <laughs> I have two screens. Are you a tab monster? Yeah,
2: I'm very much a tab monster, like I just slow down everything. Uh, Let's see, I have uh, my email, like my work email stuff, because we were having server issues this morning. Uh, I have a bunch of different recipes. Um, I have little like random articles that I meet read, like uh, six upright ab exercises that will crush your core. I have what happens when you stop eating all sugar, and what happens when meditation turns toxic. Um, I have my two blog posts that I'm overdue on that I need to get to VJ, um, and then I have another tab over here on the left for Zelda: Breath of the Wild. I am a huge gamer. Uh, well, not so not not as big as I was, but like kind of to my to my core, like in my heart of hearts, I still am a giant nerd and like. So I, my fiance got me a a Nintendo switch for Christmas and during my taper that saved me because I just started filling in that time with Zelda and it was so much fun. Um, I like barely played it from the time that she got it for me from Christmas. But then like once that taper came, it was like the perfect way to suck up time. So yeah, those are my tabs. What's the other question?
0: Uh, Just what do people need to hear before we get out of here? There's so much more to you. I mean... We could have got into just stories and race experiences and whatever, but one thing, what do people need to hear today before they leave?
2: Time is shorter than you think, so you got to do everything that you can do. I like it. Yeah, and it's true. We got less time than you think. Um, I guess otherwise, I'm inconsistent on the Instagram, but that's where I'm at, Uh, Migs Runs. And otherwise I'm a Yancey camp coach, even though I'm not doing a whole lot of OCR these days, uh, it's still something that I love and I have like tons of knowledge to share with people on there. Um, And then otherwise, just if you're ever in Durango and you want to run a big, steep, nasty stuff, hit me up and I'm happy to, to run. I don't, I don't discriminate against paces and I love to train. So yeah, like, And as you, and as everybody knows, you know, Anthony has like open, open invitations at the ultra house. And I run, I run with those knuckleheads, you know, twice a week, most of the time. So, except for right now, because like I said, unstructured time. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Miguel is great catching back up with
1: you. Good meeting you. Likewise. Thanks for the conversation. See you fellas.
2: No, I'm